The Sardar Patel Memorial Lectures, arranged by All India Radio, are being given this year by Dr. P.B. Gajendra Gadkar, Vice-Chancellor of Bombay University and former Chief Justice of India. He has chosen for his subject, Kashmir, Retrospect and Prospect. The first of his three lectures on this subject was delivered earlier this evening at Azad Bhavan in New Delhi, under the chairmanship of Sri M. C. Sitalwad, former Attorney General of India. Introducing the speaker, Mr. Sitalwad said, Ladies and gentlemen, the distinguished lecturer who is going to deal with the important topic of Kashmir is well known to us all. Not only has he occupied the highest judicial office in the country, but he belongs to that long line of judges who have not only discharged their judicial duties with efficiency, but have taken great interest in all matters of public interests and a live interest, particularly in social and economic questions. He has chosen a topic which concerns deeply every citizen of India. We all know what has happened all these years about Kashmir, but the distinguished lecture making a retrospect of what has happened will give us a view from a new angle, not a politician's angle, but a judicial angle or perhaps a citizen's angle. And what will be more interesting, I'm sure, to all of us would be not the retrospect, but the prospect in regard to Kashmir. I now ask the learned lecturer to come and deliver his first lecture. In May of last year, I visited America at the invitation of Mr. Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of America and deans of the schools of law in some leading American universities and toured in that country for a month. During my visit, I spoke before the faculties of law in several universities, as well as at meetings arranged on behalf of the bar in some important places. The subject on which I spoke on most of these occasions was the Constitution of India, its first 15 years. I tried to explain in my speeches how the development of the constitutional law in India after the 26th of January 1950 showed India's determination to achieve the objective of a socialist order by democratic means. At the end of my speeches, formally delivered before meetings called for that purpose, as well as at luncheon and dinner parties which I attended, questions were invariably asked and the question and answer period was always an exhilarating though taxing experience. My questioners were eminent persons, men and women belonging to different walks of life. They were lawyers, 
judges, doctors, engineers, politicians. Amongst the questions asked, those on Kashmir occupied an important place. I was, it was consistently put to me that India had promised a plebiscite and in the long run had been refusing to honor her promise. That in substance was the refrain of the questions put to me. I tried to explain the background of the whole question, the circumstances under which reference to plebiscite was made, the events which had taken place thereafter, and I tried to impress upon the questioners how the refusal or the reluctance of India to keep the alleged promise was justified, whether the question was approached from a purely constitutional point of view or was considered from a political, sociological, or human point of view. I got the feeling that most of my questionnaires were satisfied with the explanation I gave, and I realized that inability to understand India's point of view was not always or necessarily the result of cynicism or hostility to India. And so, when I returned to India, I planned to write a short monograph on Kashmir and set out briefly in a logical manner the broad features and essential aspects of India's approach to this question. However, when soon after my retirement, I returned to Bombay and joined the Bombay University as its vice chancellor, I was literally overwhelmed with the work which faced me and I was so completely absorbed in the new and fascinating problems which I had to face that I almost forgot about my plan to write on Kashmir. Whilst I was engaged in all the activities relating to the educational and administrative work of the university, I received a cordial letter from Mr. Raj Bahadur, the Minister for Information and Broadcasting, inviting me to deliver this year's Sardar Patel Memorial Lectures. I readily accepted because I thought this invitation would give me an opportunity to speak on Kashmir. So I chose for my lecture the subject Kashmir, Retrospect and Prospect. It appeared to me that the discussion of this question on the occasion of the Sardar Patel Memorial Lectures would be an appropriate way of paying my tribute to the memory of Vallabhai. It is now a matter of history that Vallabhai helped to consolidate India after she was split into two countries, India and Pakistan, on the 15th of August, 47. Before the 15th of August, India was made up of two constituents, a large part consisting of different provinces described as British India and Indian India, which consisted of 562 states. The enemies of Indian independence hoped and the friends of India apprehended that as a result of the constitutional doctrine that the different Indian states became sovereign and independent states, free India would be balkanized. But at, but at that critical moment in India's history, Vallabhai went into action and achieved the remarkable feat of consolidating the whole of India into one indivisible unit, which ultimately became the Republic of India. By his diplomacy and tact, his persuasiveness and his imagination, Vallabhai began the process of integrating the Indian states with the rest of India in a very effective manner. His efforts were supported by the patriotism of some of the princes, the force of the time spirit which was incalculably in favor of Indian unity, and the pulls and pressures of public opinion. The whole operation was, however, completed with such masterly skill that the resulting unity of India became the cornerstone of the Indian constitution. I have no doubt that history will give Vallabhai a place of pride and will regard him as the maker of modern India. In view of this exalted position of Vallabhai in the history of India, it seemed to me that it would be appropriate 
if I discuss Kashmir in retrospect and prospect on this significant and solemn occasion. That is an additional justification for choosing this subject for my lectures. Before I proceed to deal with my subject, I would like to make it clear that my lectures do not at all purport to be a history of Kashmir in retrospect. I will not attempt to describe the historical events in detail. During the course of my discussion, I will no doubt have occasion to refer to the Pakistani raids in Kashmir in October 47 and the Pakistani aggression on Kashmir in August 65. But these events, like others, will form a part of my narrative just to furnish connecting links of the main story relating to Kashmir in its broad features. The historical, the political, and the constitutional aspects of the matter will be considered during the course of my lectures. But even on these matters, I would not seek to be elaborate or exhaustive. My idea is to present a bird's eye view of Kashmir and thereby attempt to give a clear picture of the relevant aspects of the problem in support of my conclusion that the approach adopted by India in relation to Kashmir is fully justified. It is also necessary for me to make clear at this stage that whatever I purpose to say in my lectures has probably been said before. I claim no originality whatever in this matter. So much has been said and written about Kashmir since the raiders invaded it in October 47 that it is really difficult to introduce any new aspect in discussing the matter. Several writers have written on this question, and though I have tried to acknowledge my debt to these writers by indicating wherever I have relied upon them, I would like to express my gratitude to all those whose books or speeches or writings I have had occasion to consult before I decided to express my view on this subject. The material available on this subject is voluminous, and I must confess that I have not been able to consult the whole of it. The title which I have given to my lectures is Kashmir, Retrospect and Prospect. I do not want to describe my lectures by the title The Kashmir Problem, Retrospect and Prospect. At the outset, I think it is necessary to emphasize that what I am discussing is not the problem of Kashmir as such. What I am discussing is Kashmir, its past, present and future in relation to India. No doubt, as a result of the Pakistani raids, which took place in October 47, a dispute did arise between India and Pakistan because the raids created a situation to which India drew the attention of the Security Council by its complaint lost before the Security Council on the 1st of January 48. I will have occasion to refer to this complaint later, but for the present it would be enough to recall that as a member of the United Nations, India complained to the Security Council that raiders had invaded Kashmir, that they were allowed transit across Pakistan and were permitted to use Pakistan territory as their base of operations, that they included Pakistani nationals and drew their military equipment, transportation and supplies, including petrol, from Pakistan. It was also alleged that Pakistan officers were training, guarding and otherwise actively helping them. India therefore felt justified in requesting the Security Council to ask the government of Pakistan to put an end to this raid. She also indicated to the Council that if Pakistan did not put an end to the raid, India would reserve to herself the freedom to take at any time when it became necessary such military action as she might consider the situation required. This complaint, no doubt, referred to the grave situation which had arisen as a result of the raid and in that sense raised the dispute centering around the raid. In fact, it would, I think, be accurate to say that the story of Kashmir, for my purpose, substantially begins with the raid. My discussion, however, 
will relate to Kashmir and incidentally it will consider the problem arising out of the complaint made by India. I would however like to emphasize that what we are discussing is not the problem of Kashmir. We are discussing Kashmir and incidentally the problem raised by the raid organized by Pakistan in October 47. That is why I have deliberately given the present title to my lectures. Another object I have in mind in delivering these lectures this year is to address myself to the younger generation in India. Those who were born when or a few years before India became free on the 15th of August 47 now constitute an important section of our younger citizens. To them, India's struggle for political independence, followed by independence and the travail caused by partition, as well as by the incidents relating to Kashmir, are more or less matters of history. They did not see that history being made, and they naturally received their information not from contact with life itself, but from books. And it seemed to me that it would be worthwhile to record briefly and clearly, as far as I can, the broad and essential features of India's approach to Kashmir and in relations with it. I feel that the presentation of the broad features relating to Kashmir, which seems fully to justify India's approach in the past and her attitude today, will evoke in the hearts and minds of the younger generation of India a prompt response. I also venture to think that if by chance this presentation reaches the hands of any foreigners, it may help to explain to them India's attitude in this matter. That also is one of the objects which I have in mind in speaking about Kashmir on this occasion. Let us then begin with the geography of Kashmir. If one looks at the map of the territories of His Highness the Maharaj of Jammu and Kashmir, wrote Lawrence, one sees a white footprint set in the mass of black mountains. This is the valley of Kashmir, known to its inhabitants as Kahi Kashir, perched securely among the Himalayas at an average height of about 6,000 feet above the sea. It is approximately 84 miles in length and 25 miles in breadth. Northeast and west, range after range of mountains guard the valley from the outer world, while on the south it is cut off from the Punjab by rocky barriers 50 to 75 miles in width. This description of Lawrence gives a picturesque and accurate idea about the physical features this of Kashmir. Kashmir, said Dr. Sten, an eminent oriental scholar, can claim the distinction of being the only region of India which possesses an uninterrupted series of written records of history reaching back beyond the period of the Mohammedan conquest and deserving the name of real chronicles. The earliest history of Kashmir is recorded by Kallan in Raja Tarangini. It is true that much of the material in the earlier chapters of this work cannot be regarded as historical. It is more or less legendary. However, there is reason to believe that its later chapters contain germs of historical records. These chapters give a fair account of the events that took place in Kashmir from the 7th to almost the middle of the 12th century. Kallan was followed by Pandit Jongarja, who brings the history of Kashmir up to the early years of the 15th century. Shivar and Prajabhat carry on the narration up to the time when the Mughal conquest of Kashmir occurred in 1586. Then we have the works of Birbal Kachiri and Divan Kripram. British and European scholars who followed have also made contribution to the knowledge which has it was in a sense, Kashmir is a multiracial, multilingual, and multireligious state. In fact, it would be no exaggeration to say that notwithstanding many conflicts which are disclosed by the previous history of India before the British arrived, in small places and villages throughout the country, Hindus and Muslims generally live together happily and peacefully. I do not suggest 
that the relations between Hindus and Muslims were never disturbed by communal feuds, strifes or animosities. But these communal disturbances were very much accentuated during the British rule when the British rule institutionalized the religious differences themselves. The institution of separate electorates and the recognition of communal representation in the services inevitably created vested rights in the continuance of communal differences and communal claims and virtually supplied a rational philosophy for a communal outlook and a communal approach to socio-economic problems. When this communal approach and attitude was later accentuated partly because of the momentum created by separate electorates and communal representation and partly because of the shortcomings of political leadership, India was ultimately driven to its partition. But confining myself at this stage to the picture of Kashmir, I think I will be justified in claiming that for several years before 1947, Kashmir was not usually disturbed by communal strife and on the whole remained true to the pattern of tolerance and understanding to which Lawrence has borne testimony in his book. That is why I like to describe Kashmir as it existed before the 15th of August 47 as the true symbol of India. It is clear that the political background of Kashmir on the 14th of August 47 was that the Maharaja had been challenged by the dynamic, secular and progressive movement initiated by Sheikh Abdullah and that Sheikh Abdullah's movement had received unqualified support from the Congress. On the other hand, the Maharaja appeared to have received an assurance from the Muslim Conference and the League that they were opposed to the ideology of Sheikh Abdullah and would be content to continue the status quo without a substantial change. It is in the light of this background that the subsequent events in Kashmir must be considered. As a result of the development of constitutional law, both in Kashmir and in India, the position today is that Jammu and Kashmir forms part of the territory of the Union of India and is shown as such by Entry 15 in Schedule 1 to the Constitution. The obvious consequence of this constitutional position is that Jammu and Kashmir cannot go out or be taken out of the territory of the Union of India without the amendment of the Constitution of India as well as the Constitution of Jammu and Kashmir. Any arrangement which may lead to the result of Jammu and Kashmir ceasing to be a part of India or holding any political position other than that contemplated by the respective provisions of the two present constitutions cannot be lawfully or legitimately effected without taking recourse to Article 3 and 368 of the Constitution of India. In the Berubari Union and Exchange of Enclaves, the Supreme Court had occasion to consider the executive power of the Union of India in relation to an agreement by which any part of the territory of the Union of India could be transferred to Pakistan and the findings which the Supreme Court submitted to the President in that reference clearly show that whenever any part of the territory of the Union of India is intended to be ceded to a foreign country, a law of parliament relatable to Article 3 of the Constitution would be incompetent. A law of parliament relatable to Article 368 of the Constitution is competent and would be necessary. In the opinion of the Supreme Court, a law of parliament relatable to both Article 368 and Article 3 would be necessary only if Parliament chooses first to pass a law amending Article 3. In that case, the, par the Parliament may have to pass a law on those lines under Article 368 and then follow it up with a law relatable to the amended Article 3 to implement any agreement in regard to the position of any part of the Union territory. This may sound like a technical point, but it cannot be overlooked that as a result of the operation of the respective provisions of the Indian Constitution and the Constitution of Kashmir, the question of making any alteration in the constitutional status of Jammu and Kashmir 
has inevitably to be considered in the light of the constitutional law relevant to the point, and there can be no doubt whatever that no alteration in the constitutional status of Jammu and Kashmir can be effected unless steps are taken by Parliament in the light of the opinion expressed by the Supreme Court in Birubari case. In appreciating the effect of this constitutional position, I think I ought to emphasize the fact that after the instrument of accession was signed by the Maharaja of Kashmir, significant and constitutional developments have taken place both in India and in Kashmir. As a part of the constitutional development which the political life of Kashmir witnessed, there are certain events which are of considerable importance. As I have already indicated, as a result of the elections held in Kashmir, the Constituent Assembly of Kashmir was formed, and after considerable labor, it evolved the Kashmir Constitution. The election led to the formation of a democratic government in Kashmir. Then followed the general elections in 57 and 62. And as a result of these elections, a democratic government has been constituted. And it is under this democratic government that the administration of Kashmir is carried on in a democratic way. Having regard to these events, it would, I think, be idle not to attach considerable importance to the true constitutional position pertaining to the status of Jammu and Kashmir as a part of the territories of the Union of India. This is the ultimate result of the constitutional development which I have so far described. It is clear that the true constitutional position as it was interpreted by the British government, by the Congress and the League entitled the rulers of Indian states to decide what the future of their respective states should be. In other words, if the Maharaja of Kashmir had decided to accede either to Pakistan or India on the 15th of August 47, no dispute could have been raised. If he had decided to accede to Pakistan, India would not have made any grievance because India had clearly and authoritatively conveyed to the Maharaja that if he decided to accede to Pakistan, India would not make any grievance about it at all. On the other hand, if the Maharaja had decided to accede to India, Pakistan could not have any complaint because Jinnah and the League were positively and definitely committed to the view that it was the sole privilege and prerogative of the ruling prince to decide the future relationship of his state with the two dominions. At this moment of historical significance, the Maharaja, however, showed unusual indecisiveness in dealing with this urgent problem, and his indecisiveness ultimately led to the consequences of an incalculable character. In considering this aspect of the problem, it is plainly futile to speculate what might have happened if the Maharaja had come to a decision in good time. Of all sad words of pen and tongue, says the poet, the saddest of these it might have been. I have already referred to the fact that the indecisiveness shown by the Maharaja on this momentous occasion ultimately led to very serious consequences. In fairness to the Maharaja, however, I think it is necessary to understand the cause of his indecisiveness. If the Maharaja had been keen on safeguarding his own position as an absolute ruler, he would and could have acceded to Pakistan. But he knew that accession to Pakistan would be wholly unacceptable to Sheikh Abdullah and his powerful party in Kashmir. We have already seen how Sheikh Abdullah was then the articulate voice of the progressive and awakened forces of Kashmir and commanded the loyalty of an overwhelming large number of Kashmiris, including Muslims and the other communities. The Maharaja could not have contemplated with equanimity the political unrest which would necessarily have erupted if he had decided to accede to Pakistan. On the other hand, it's conceivable that his inclination was to align himself with India. But the idea of acceding to India immediately opened the prospect of putting Sheikh Abdullah in power. Sheikh Abdullah's relations with the Congress, and particularly with Nehru, left no doubt in the Maharaja's mind 
that the first consequence of accession to India would be to place Sheikh Abdullah in a position of effective political power and that prevented his accession to India. Working under the pulls and pressure of these conflicting fears and apprehensions, the Maharaja chose to delay his decision. Procrastination, he thought, might help him to find a solution. It was in this situation that he began to toy with the idea of an independent Kashmir. If the Maharaja entertained this idea seriously at any time during these troublesome days, it must be said that he was unfortunately oblivious of the torrential forces which were about to be let loose on the country and which would have made, it, made the peaceful existence of an independent Kashmir absolutely impossible. That, I am inclined to think, is the background of the tragic indecisiveness which the Maharaja showed on this occasion. It is relevant and material to remember that Lord Mountbatten had done his best to advise the Maharaja to abandon the concept of independence and to ascertain the will of his people. Lord Birdwood points out that Lord Mountbatten assured the Maharaja that the newly created State Department under Vallabhai Patel on behalf of the Government of India would not regard a verdict in favour of Pakistan as an unfriendly act. There is no doubt that the comment made by Lord Birdwood on this subject to the matter is both true and significant. Says Lord Birdwood, this is extremely important since the story has frequently been misinterpreted and we have been asked to believe that Mountbatten and his government had exercised some kind of previous influence to produce the Maharaja's accession to India. When the time limit inexorably prescribed was fast running out and only three days intervened before the 15th of August 47, the Kashmir government announced its intention of signing standstill agreements with both Pakistan and India. Simultaneous telegrams were sent by the Chief Minister of Kashmir to both India and Pakistan. Pakistan immediately accepted, but India wanted to hold further consultation before accepting it. The agreement which Pakistan accepted was no more than a device which any prince could sign with one or other of the dominions in order to ensure that in case where the ruler needed more time to make up his mind, the normal postal and telegraphic services and economic undertakings which hitherto British India had provided should continue. Lord Birdwood is of the opinion that if the trades had not occurred, India might have signed similar agreements with Kashmir. Let me at this stage quote the words of Lord Mountbatten himself to show how India was anxious that the Maharaja of Kashmir should decide the matter without any delay. In his address to the East India Association after his return from India, Lord Mountbatten described the matter in these words. In the case of Kashmir, I went up personally and saw the Maharaja. I spent four days with him in July. On every one of those days, I persisted with the same advice. Ascertain the will of your people by any means and join whichever dominion your people wish to join by August 13 this year. He did, did not do that, and what happened can be seen. Had he acceded to Pakistan <coughs> before August 14, the future government of India had allowed me to give His Highness an assurance that no objections would be raised by them. Had His Highness acceded to India by August 14, Pakistan did not exist and therefore could not have interfered. The only trouble that could have been raised was by non-accession to either side, and this was unfortunately the very course followed by the Maharaja. While Kashmir thus remained undecided, events in the rest of India were on the march, and as a consequence of partition, terrible incidents rudely disturbed the peace of India. Movement of populations began on a vast scale, and people who belonged to one country until then, India, were so completely lost to the human sense of dignity and decency that massacres on a very large scale disfigured the pages of India's history. There was turmoil, disturbance, restlessness all over the country, and communal frenzy seemed to have taken possession of all people. 
In this heart-rending situation, the isolation of Kashmir, uncommitted either to India or to Pakistan, merely showed that the Maharaja of Kashmir vainly, though fondly, hoped that he would be able to continue his state as an independent state and avoid accession either to India or to Pakistan. That, however, was not to be. On the 22nd of October, 47, fully armed tribesmen from the northwest Pakistan and other Pakistani nationals entered Kashmir from two directions in motor vehicles. This illegal entry of the tribesmen was obviously intended to operate as an invasion of Kashmir, and the raiders appeared determined to attack the capital of the state. This invasion clearly demonstrated the determination of the invaders to decide the fate of Kashmir by the power of the sword. It was not difficult for Pakistan to enlist the cooperation of some of the militant champions of the cause of Pakistan, and ex-soldiers from Punch readily joined in the attack. The main participants in this invasion were the tribesmen from the frontier regions of Pakistan. The Mahsus were particularly prominent in the ranks of the raiders. It is indeed ironical that the raiders who wanted Kashmir to accede to Pakistan adopted a brutal strategy in the process, which definitely and instantaneously provoked undisguised hostility in the minds of the citizens of Kashmir. Rape of innocent women and murder of innocent citizens, arson and loot of public and private property marked the advance of the raiding party. <clears throat> the description given by objective observers of what happened in the wake of the progress of these raiders clearly shows that the raiders consisted of uncivilized, uneducated men of a primitive type who were guided mainly by their thirst to satisfy the, the basest of animal instincts of man. It is this raid which begins the story of Kashmir as it is known to history since 1947. And ironically enough, it is this brutal attempt made by Pakistan to force Kashmir by the strength of the naked sword, which in a sense precipitated the accession of Kashmir to India.